How many of you all are familiar with the term dual citizenship? Y'all know that term, yeah? It uh, is defined as it, as it sounds. It's uh, a term used for an individual who is a citizen of two countries at the same time. Some of you may be familiar with that term. You may even know how uh, dual citizenship works. Uh, some of you not, but I'm sure many of you are, are thinking to yourselves right now, what on earth does this have to do with today's sermon? Well, I'll tell you, believers, do you realize that we are dual citizens? God affirms this in his word. He says, you and me, all of us, as believers are dual citizens. We are citizens of this country and citizens of his country. So if you're here this morning and you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you have dual citizenship. Now listen, believers, because that's the case, because that's true, you and I, we, we all, we have earthly obligations and heavenly obligations, earthly commitments and heavenly commitments, earthly authorities and a heavenly authority. This is so very important for us to keep in mind because the problem that most of us deal with as believers is that many of us, we tend to be extremists. We either become fully engaged as heavenly citizens or fully engaged as earthly ones. Some believe God condemns cultural involvement of any kind, and they attempt to live their lives really counter to culture, against culture, as much so as humanly possible. And, and other believers believe that for Christians to be faithful in keeping God's great commission, they must become immersed in the culture around them. Other believers so compartmentalize their lives that who they are at church looks completely different from who they are at home, and who they are at home looks completely different from who they are at, at work, and who they are at work looks completely different from who they are socially, out and about. So the question remains, and it's still being debated today among Christians, how are we to live in this world as citizens of the United States and as God's kingdom people? We know this world is broken. God tells us that in his word. We know that we are to be set apart from this world, but we also know that we have been called to go out in the world to minister to the world. How do we do that? Well, if you have your Bibles, Turn to Titus 3. We're going to talk about that today. We are continuing our series through Titus entitled The Right Kind of Church in a World Gone Wrong. We've got two sermons left this week and next, and then we'll be finished with Titus and on to Habakkuk. And yes, that is a book in the Bible. Come and learn about it, all right? We're going to be in Habakkuk in a few weeks, but we've got to finish Titus first. So far, Paul has been speaking to and through Titus to the leaders and the believers in the churches on the island of Crete about their behavior in the church. We have established that, that this island, Crete, at this time was a godless place. We're told that it was in the book itself from one of their own. 
In Titus chapter 1 verse 12, we're told a Cretan of their own said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul agrees. He says, this testimony is true. They were not good people. There were also many false teachers on this island, peddlers of error, spiritual scam artists, wicked influencers in the church who were leading God's people away from the message that saves, the truth of the gospel message. And we also get the idea that in this church, the people in the church had one foot in the church and one foot in the world in a bad way, not to minister, but they were being influenced by these worldly and, and false teachings and, and the worldly behaviors of the people there. They were being influenced by that. And you would think that, that after all this, Paul knowing this, and speaking on this would then instruct these believers in the church to have no interaction whatsoever with the outside unbelieving world. You might think that Paul would say to guard yourself against ungodliness, to keep the church healthy, you need to live your lives with no interaction with the wicked Cretan culture at all. You need to cut yourself off completely from these false teachers just build up huge brick walls around your church buildings, keep God's people in, and keep everyone else out. You would think he might say that, but he doesn't. In Titus 3, Paul, through Titus, explains how God's people are to live as dual citizens. Citizens of Crete and citizens of heaven. Here's how they are to live. Watch this. Paul says they are to live as God's kingdom people in Crete so that citizens of Crete become God's kingdom people. Did you get that? They are to live as citizens of God's kingdom in Crete so that citizens of Crete become citizens of heaven. And believers, that's how we're to live. We are to live our Christian lives. We are to live as God's kingdom people in the U.S., in Jacksonville, Texas, so that citizens of the U.S., citizens of Jacksonville and New Summerfield and Rusk and Bullard and Troop and Tyler become citizens of heaven. Now, what does that look like? Well, Paul shows us in Titus 3. First, God's people are to be, number one, submissive, Citizens. Look at Titus 3.1. Remind them, Paul says. They've heard it before. Do not let them forget that they are to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Paul says that citizens of heaven are to be doers of good in society and that they are to be submissive to the rulers and authorities that be. This is a very unpopular teaching in our world today and to many in the church as well. Many don't like what Paul says here. There's nothing I can do about that. If you have an issue with what's said here, you got to take it up with Paul and ultimately with God, all right? Because what Paul says here is clear, and this is not the only place he says it. In Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You see? Simple to understand, but hard to swallow. 
Paul gives a command through Titus that God's people are to be submissive to governing authorities. Charles Swindoll says this in his commentary on Titus. Look at this quote up on the screen. Paul's commands leave no room for anything short of complete submissive obedience, not merely respect, but full compliance with their laws and directives. This teaching, like the teaching of wives being submissive to their husbands, is very unpopular in our world today. Pretty much whenever that word submission is used, whatever follows, people don't like it. And when they hear this teaching, they begin to run down the long list of exceptions. They say, well, well, you know, Paul was writing thousands of years ago. He doesn't know how bad things have gotten in our time and in our world today. Surely, if, if Paul was examining this situation or that situation, he might say something different. What if they tell me to do something that violates God's law? Well, we have a clear teaching on how we're to respond there, believers, right? But listen, before you convince yourself that Paul would say something different in our day. Let me remind you of the context here. Paul is writing to Christians during the time of Roman rule. Do you know who was in power at this time while Paul's writing this letter? Nero, one of the ruthless, most ruthless, evil rulers in all of human history. He, he got worse and worse as time went on. But not only was, was he bad, the empire where he ruled was, was wicked. In first century Rome, black magic and sorcery were common practice. Emperor wor worship was required. Sexual immorality was everywhere. And most every event celebrated in ancient Rome had ties to paganism. No matter how bad you think our society is, believe me, it doesn't compare, it doesn't hold a candle to first century Rome. There's no comparison. So if Paul's message to the Christians in Rome and the Christians on the island of Crete was to be submissive to their rulers and authorities why would his message be any different for us today? Believers, this is God's message to us. Why? Why? What's the reason for this teaching? Well, I believe having this mentality as a church helps keep God's people on track, helps the church keep the main thing the main thing. We said earlier in this study that while Paul did not push for social change, he did push for heart change. Paul probably knew that while social change is good, heart change is what truly transforms culture. The church must not forget this. For things to truly change on the island of Crete, people must be transformed from the inside out by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to be the mission of Christ's church. While it's fine for believers in the church to serve in public office and Christians should be encouraged to vote as Christians and speak out and sit, stand against decisions made by government leaders that go counter to God's word, the church must never lose sight of its calling to escort non-believers to Christ, establish believers in truth, and equip them for ministry through the faithful, red-hot Bible preaching of the word of God. That's what Paul wanted for the churches in Crete. He wanted them to labor toward this end, to show their obedience to God by being submissive to governing authorities, being obedient to them, being doers of good 
in the community. Believe it or not, that's what the church needs most in a world gone wrong. It needs believers being dutiful citizens, submissive to governing authorities. It also needs God's people to not be distant and separate from the non-believing world, but instead, point number two, to be peaceful and loving neighbors. Look at verse 2. To speak evil of no one, underline no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show all, to show a perfect courtesy toward all people, underline all people as well. Let me ask you, are these things that we're to be doing to a select group of people, those we like the best, those closest to us, believers only, notice the words, no one in all people. Paul says, speak evil of no one. That's the Greek word blasphemeo. It's where we get our word blasphemy. It means to curse, to slander. It is a manner of speech that disregards and disrespects one another. Paul says believers are not to speak in this way against anyone. They are to avoid quarreling. That is one word, the Greek word amakos, referring to someone who is peaceable. It, it means to be a non-fighter. God's people are, are not to be hateful in speech to others. They're to be non-fighters. They're to be peacemakers. They are to be gentle. I like the way Swindoll defines this. He says, that's not to suggest we are to become the doormats of the world. That's not what that word means. That means God's people are to be under control, level-headed when dealing with difficulty. Instead of stirring matters up, they should be the calming agent settling matters down. Notice what else the godly do. We're told that they show perfect courtesy toward all people. They are to be kind and gracious and loving in their dealings with others. They forgive. They make peace. They extend grace. They're merciful. Again, toward whom? Those closest? Those who deserve it? To all. You know what? I looked up that word all. You know what it means in the Greek? It means all. It means all. No matter the age, no, no matter the gender, no matter the race, no matter the skin color, no matter the language, no matter the socioeconomic status, Paul says God's people are to be kind and peaceable and gracious to all people everywhere. Now, how are God's people able to live in this way? How are they able to be peacemakers, to be kind and gentle with all people? Can we be honest for a minute? We're in church. Let's be honest, all right? There are some difficult people that we have to deal with in life, right? There are some in our world who are not in the least bit lovable. Some who can be extremely rude and argumentative and combative. How do we respond to those people in this way? Paul tells us in the next point. Through humility, through remembering who we were because of sin, and get this, who we now are because of grace. By keeping these things in mind, God's people are able to be peaceful and loving neighbors. They are able to be, point number three, humble servants of God. Look at verses three through six. This is the greatest passage in this book, 
one of the greatest passages in Scripture. Paul says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul explains to the believers here through Titus that for believers to live as submissive citizens of Crete and as loving and peaceful neighbors to all, they must first remember who they were because of sin and who they now are because of God's amazing grace. Believers, the reason... You should speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling and be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people, even those who are rude and argumentative and condescending and ungracious and combative is because that's who you used to be because of sin and because that's not who you now are because of God's grace. Paul, through Titus, humbles the Christians in Crete also reminds them of God's amazing grace so they'll be motivated to, to love and serve others in this way. He says, for we. I love how Paul includes himself in there. And Titus, all of them. For we, ourselves, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Believers, I don't know about you, but I was certainly this way. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. Some people think, oh, I don't want to think about those days. Those days are behind me. Have you ever noticed God doesn't want us to forget them? Deuteronomy 15, 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Ephesians 2, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. Verse 11 of Ephesians 2, therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Folks, I get the impression that God does not want us to forget who we were and the wonderful work he did in saving us. This understanding, remembering this great work that God has done in our life, it enables us to minister to others and love and serve others in humility. May we never forget who we were because of sin and who we now are because of God's amazing grace. This is what led John Newton to write that famous Song and those famous words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Before salvation, there was not a greater wretch in Newton's day than Newton himself. I heard a pastor say recently, before, before salvation, Newton 
sank to become one of the lowest dregs of human society. He was a slave runner. He mingled with low lives, but he was changed by the amazing grace of God and became a great preacher of God's grace. He never forgot it. Do you know what verse Newton put above his, his desk? that was displayed above his desk, Deuteronomy 15, 15. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. We're to remember that we were once foolish. We thought we had all the answers to life's tough questions, believing there was nothing wrong with us. We, we, we lived for ourselves in disobedience toward God. We were led astray by the teachings of the world and by our own passions and pleasures. We lived lives of discontentment, selfishly sinning against others when it was in our best interest to do so, being hated by others and hating one another. Paul says that's who you were. You are like every other Cretan, but praise be to God, you've been changed. How? How had them be how had how had they been changed? To whom do we credit this change to? Paul tells us, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Stop there for a minute. Let me ask you. Did we change? in our own power because we have the desire to change and we sought out change? Did we come to the realization one day, you know what, this sin life is no longer for me and we go seek God out and we find Him and find salvation? Paul says to the believers in Ephesians 2, you were dead. Dead means dead. Only God can bring the spiritually dead back to life again. Only God can do this work. Listen, you don't change by your own power. You don't decide one day, you know what, I'm tired of sinning. Now I'm going to go to seek and find God and you find him. If you did, you would deserve some of the praise for your salvation and you don't deserve any of it because you were not seeking God. God sought you. We're told here, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He appeared to us to save us, not the other way around. You've heard me say before that if you could lose your salvation, you would. And guess what? If you could find your salvation, you wouldn't. Not in your own strength. You wouldn't even look for it. God has to do this work in your heart and life. I love the story of R.C. Sproul telling of his testimony of salvation. He's in college and he's going out for a wild night with his buddies and he's going back into the dorm to pick up a pack of cigarettes from the vending machine. They had those back in those days. So he goes back in and right then and there, someone meets him, shares Christ with him and R.C. Sproul is saved right then and there. And looking back, on that event, he said, that night, I wasn't looking for God. I was looking for cigarettes. But God found me instead and saved me right then and there, and he deserves all the glory and the honor and the praise for that. Amen? Believers, do you remember when God found you? Well, I do. Fayetteville, Arkansas, 2001, that summer, found me right then and there and saved me and changed me forever and he deserves all the glory and the honor and the praise for that 
Were it not for his work in my life, I would still be foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing my days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. By God's grace, I am what I am. And that's exactly what Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. Let's look at it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Great verse of Scripture, commit it to memory. Tells us a lot here. Paul reminds the Christians in Crete through Titus that this great work of salvation is not something that is earned through our own good works, but it is applied according to God's mercy. God has saved us through the accomplished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. His work is applied to us not because we deserve it, not because we're good, but because of God's own goodness. While I don't know the ins and outs of every believer in this room in great detail, I can say something very definitive about each and every one of us. None of us deserve salvation. None of us earned it. It was given to us according to God's mercy. Greatest sacrifice ever made. The most expensive gift ever given. While it was given, it, it came at no cost to us. Cost God to give it. To think for one second that you come close to meriting, to be deserving of salvation is an offense to holy God because it so cheapens this gift that God sent, the work that Christ accomplished, and the great sacrifice that He made. You can't earn this gift. The only thing you contribute to salvation is your sin which made you in need of saving. That's it. That's all you contribute. Look at the end of verse 5. We're told he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now I need to say this here. Paul is not saying here, that we are saved through passing through the waters of baptism. Some teach that, but that would contradict the first part of verse 5 where Paul says we're saved not by works done by us. Baptism would be a work done by us, so that's not what Paul's saying. There's no water in this text at all. The word washing used here is describing the work the Holy Spirit does in the heart and in the life of a believer when he transforms us from the inside out and makes us right. This is referring to the inward work of God here. The washing here is metaphorical. Paul gives us some great insight here into what has taken place in our heart and life in salvation. While we are saved through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, through trusting in that work alone for salvation, we also need the Spirit of God to work in our heart and life and awaken us to faith. Just like dead people don't revive themselves, spiritually dead people don't revive themselves. It's the Holy Spirit who has the spiritual defibrillator, right? Think of it in terms of birth. Was your physical birth a work that you did? 
No, it was a work of your parents and ultimately a work of God. We're not responsible for our new birth any more than we are responsible for our natural birth. If we were, we would be deserving of some of the praise. We do not deserve that praise. Look at verses 6 through 7. Whom he, now this is talking about the Holy Spirit here. Look back at verse 5. Whom he, the Holy Spirit, poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I love this here. This is a Trinitarian passage explaining how God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at work in our salvation. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three at work here. Paul tells us here that God saved us according to His mercy through the inward work of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Father sent His Son to save us Through his life, death, and resurrection, Christ came. He lived the perfect life for us, laid his perfect life down in our place. He took our sin on himself, eternal punishment for that sin that that was reserved for us so that he could in turn give his righteous life in exchange for our sinful one through faith. And that great work that Christ accomplished for us, it's applied through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who changes us from the inside out, awakens us to a knowledge of Christ's person and work, awakens us to faith, to believe, and to receive that work. This is how we're made right with God. Again, it's not a work that we do. It's a work that God has done for us. It's a work that God does in us. Look at verse 7. So that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice we're justified, we're declared not guilty, but righteous, forgiven, changed, restored by God's grace alone. It's unmerited, undeserved. And through that great work, Paul tells us we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, everyone is interested in an inheritance, right? Let's be honest. There's few people here or in the next service, I'm sure, that would gripe about receiving a rich inheritance. Oftentimes, people receive an inheritance simply based upon their relationship to the one who has passed. It's it's oftentimes not something that is earned. It's not based upon the the work accomplished by the one receiving it. Oftentimes, it was earned by the testator, right? And get this, for one to receive an inheritance, the testator must die. It's a great illustration of the work that Christ accomplished for us. Believers in Christ, we have a heavenly inheritance. It is undeserved. It is unearned. It was a great work of our Lord and Savior and becomes ours through our relationship with Him and is available to us because He died to save us. Because of the great work of Christ that He accomplished through His life, death, and resurrection, because of the fact that we as believers are in Christ through through faith alone in Him alone, we become heirs. We have this hope of eternal life in Christ. We are promised forever with Him in His presence, with His people in glory forever. Verse 8, Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. This is truth. 
This is gospel truth, believers. And he says, and I want you to insist on these things. Again, teach these things. Titus, you and the leaders. Why? Here's the reason. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So he is sharing the gospel here for the believers. Do you see that? For their benefit. He gives the reason for the reminder here, the reason for him reminding the Christians in Crete of the gospel message of where they once were because of sin and where they now are because of grace is so that they will live that way and treat others accordingly. Think again about the context. He's explaining how Christians are to live and shine the light of God's gospel in a fallen and sin-stained world. He tells them they're to be submissive to governing authorities, even in crooked, corrupt systems, under crooked and corrupt government and leaders. They're to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people, even the unlovable, even those who are, who are combative. How can God's people live in this way, in a land filled with liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons? By remembering, once again, who they once were because of sin and who they now are because of grace. How do you love the unlovable believers? By remembering that God loved you when you were unlovable. How do you forgive the unforgivable? By remembering how God forgave you when you were unforgivable. How do you show mercy to the merciless by remembering how God saved you according to his mercy? How do you extend grace to those who do not deserve it by remembering that you are a recipient of God's amazing grace that you did not earn, that you do not deserve, but that was given out of God's goodness to you? That's how you do it. That's Paul's point. Now, before you can live in this way, you must first ask yourself this question. This is for non-believers. Have I been forgiven? Have I been saved? Have I experienced God's mercy and salvation? Are you a recipient of His grace? It starts there. You first must be born again. If you have not been born again, if Christ is not your Lord, you are his enemy. It's as simple as that. And there is nothing that you do that will be pleasing to God in that state. Sometimes people say, well, well, non-believers do good things. Well, they try to carve out life on their own apart from and opposed to God. That's sin. That was the sin of Adam. Trying to live a life being good apart from and opposed to God, that's rebellion. That's not the life that God created us to live. You need to be cleansed from the inside out. You need to be washed. You need a new life, and God is able to give you that new life through the person and the work of His Son, Jesus, through the inward work of the Spirit. If you're here this morning, I pray that the Spirit of God is working in you showing you that you are a sinner in need of salvation and that Christ has accomplished your salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. Maybe you're here, you want, you, you want 
his work that he accomplished applied to your life so you can be forgiven of sin and restored to a right relationship with the living God. I invite you today, if this is you, to respond by forsaking your sin and make Christ Lord and be saved today. No better time than right now to do that. Let's pray together.